0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Experto Crede, the Minnesota Law Review's first podcast. I'm your host, Vina Tripathi, the lead online editor of Volume 103 for the Minnesota Law Review. Our guest today is Professor David L. Knoll, the author of Arbitration Conflicts, published in Issue 2 of Volume 103, which is available online now. Professor Knoll is an associate professor of law at Rutgers Law School, and he teaches and writes in the fields of civil procedure, complex litigation, and public law. His scholarship focuses on the institutions and procedures used to enforce the law. It includes work on arbitration, private statutory enforcement, the development of a dispute resolution procedure, and access to civil justice. Knoll is also the co-a- co-author of the leading casebook, Legislation and the Regulatory State, on the federal administrative process. You can also find him on Twitter at David L. Knoll. Welcome, Professor Knoll.
1: Oh, it's great to be here with you.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today on Experto Crede. So, the focus of our conversation today will be on your article, Arbitration Conflicts. In it, uh, you address the what type of statute the Federal Arbitration Act is and when slash how its meaning can be modified by another statute. So, uh, what prompted you to write this piece?
1: So, what's motivating this article is that um, there have been a lot of disputes about arbitration. And anybody who's been following Um, developments in the civil justice system, one of the big stories is that arbitration is sort of spreading everywhere. There was a a series of front page articles in the New York Times talking about how many people are subject to arbitration agreements. And there have been some very specific legal controversies um, about um, the meaning of the Federal Arbitration Act. The big questions have been um, the extent to which statutory claims can be arbitrated um, whether the FAA applies in state courts, um, the extent of control over dispute resolution procedure um, that you can exercise by contract. But in all of these cases and in all of the literature on the FAA no one has sort of stepped back and taken a 10,000 foot view of what kind of statute the FAA is and um, more importantly for my purposes how it relates to other federal statutes. Uh, because, as anybody who thinks about federal legislation and regulation knows, um, the, the U.S. Code is full of federal statutes, uh, and many of them say things uh, or do things that are relevant to uh, either whether an arbitration agreement should be enforced or um, the limitations on what parties can agree to do uh, through an agreement to arbitrate. So, what the article tries to do. Uh, is really just work out that basic legal theory, right? How does the FAA fit into the broader body of federal law, um, and how does it re- how does it relate to statutes like Title VII that give you a right against employment discrimination? Um, how does it relate to other procedural statutes? And um, the aim of the article is really to develop a comprehensive theory uh, that does that.
0: Fantastic. And and you start the article out by just giving a, a discussion of the rise of arbitration conflicts and the evolution mm-hmm. of this type of jurisprudence. So uh, do, you, do you see that it's moving in one direction? Do you see that it's more of a pendulum swinging back and forth in different directions? I mean, what's your take on uh, from that 10,000-foot view that you just mentioned?
1: OK, so there's a lot of moving pieces here. Doctrinally, the big story is that more and more arbitration agreements are being enforced. Um, Starting in the mid-1980s, the Supreme Court recognizes uh, a so-called liberal federal policy favoring arbitration, and the court decides a string of cases rejecting defenses to the enforcement of arbitration uh, agreements. In conjunction with that, um, a lot of people who sell consumer products and services, a lot of employers start putting arbitration agreements into their standard form contracts and the basic reason they do so is to limit legal costs. Uh, The court has said that uh, you can bar class actions through arbitration, the court has said um, that you can limit the scope of discovery and so firms that uh, have high legal costs see arbitration as potentially a way out of um, litigation that they don't want to be involved in. So for example, Uh, Something like 50% of the US private sector workforce is now subject to an employment agreement that requires the employee to arbitrate disputes. So doctrinally, we're moving towards a world where more and more things are being arbitrated. Um, And as this has happened, um, there have been a couple of developments pushing back against the spread of arbitration. So part of this is simply political. Um, If you've been following events at, for example, Google, um, Google recently dropped the arbitration provision from its employment agreement um, after revelations that high level executives were engaging in sexual harassment uh, and Google employees raised concerns that arbitration was part of a broader system of contract provisions that were preventing bad actors from being held accountable for their wrongdoing. But part of it, especially, and this was especially something that happened during the later years of the Obama administration, was that federal regulatory agencies, um, such as the National Labor Relations Board, began invoking statutes that they administer to either um, prohibit the use of arbitration agreements or to impose conditions uh, on arbitration. And that regulatory activity Um, is really what tees up the question of how the FAA relates to other laws, because to understand whether, say, the National Labor Relations Board can regulate the use of arbitration agreements, we need a theory of how the FAA uh, and the statutes that the NLRB administers uh, relate to one another. So that's what I try and work out uh, in the article.
0: Perfect. And, and in the article, you identified several different types of statutes and, and different approaches that they take um, to uh, to relate to the FAA. So how did you divide up those categories? How did you slot different statutes into different categories? What was that process like?
1: Um, so the first process, uh, I guess the first part of the process was just reading a lot of statutes, yeah. thinking, <laughs> thinking about how, how they might affect the use of arbitration. Um, there are a lot of cases, not all of which result in published opinions um, where the validity of agency arbitration regulation uh, is at issue. So I had my research assistants pull every case that they could get their hands on where an agency was attempting to regulate uh, the use of arbitration. And once I did that, um, the statutes sort of started to organize themselves uh, into different categories of statutes that might affect uh, the the enforceability of an agreement to arbitrate.
0: Perfect. And you dive into a discussion of express qualifications versus implied qualifications. And Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like implied qualifications are the direction that things are moving. And so why do you think that is?
1: So um, because of the way that the court's arbitration jurisprudence has developed, there are relatively few statutes that expressly say that an agency can regulate the use of arbitration. And the reason for that is that until uh, the mid 1980s going through uh, and the following decades, no one really knew how expansively the Supreme Court was going to uh, interpret the Federal Arbitration Act. So for many, many decades, the assumption just was that many legal disputes weren't arbitrable. Uh, There's an old case called Wilco versus Swan, where what was at issue was the arbitrability of a securities dispute. And the Supreme Court reasoned that Because the plaintiff was asserting claims under the Securities Act, the dispute wasn't appropriate for arbitration because the act served a public regulatory function. And as long as that was our understanding of the substantive regulatory statutes, there was really no reason for Congress to specifically talk about um, whether an agency could regulate arbitration because no disputes whatsoever. Um, were arbitrable. So we have this vast body of laws that grant agencies regulatory power to do things like regulate the securities markets or regulate uh, employee management relations without talking specifically about um, whether the agency can regulate arbitration. And then much more recently, as you get into statutes like the Dodd-Frank Act, Congress starts to deal specifically with the problem of arbitration and where there's a concern that arbitration is going to interfere with the operation of a federal regulatory statute or is gonna have harmful effects, Congress either specifically addresses whether particular kinds of arbitration agreements are enforceable or gives an agency authority to do that. Um, but it's it's um, the reason that implied or implicit qualifications are, are the more important category is that Congress hasn't done that for most regulatory statutes. Most regulatory statutes are enacted when Nobody's worried about arbitration, uh, and so it, right, it sort of falls into this lacuna where um, Congress doesn't say one thing or the other about the agency's authority to uh, to address arbitration.
0: And anytime we talk about agencies, I mean, you're, we're going to have to talk about Chevron. So, so let's talk about Chevron now. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so, uh,
1: anyone who um, works in the field of administrative law, Chevron is kind of their bread and butter. Um, there's uh, there are currently big disputes. Uh, at the Supreme Court level about the continuing uh, viability uh, of Chevron. It comes up in the arbitration context because Chevron is generally um, a theory that supports agency's ability to do stuff, uh, right? The Chevron case holds that when an agency is charged with administering a statute and there's a, there's an ambiguity or there's a gap in the statute, then the agency's interpretation of the statute is controlling and so agencies, or agencies are used to invoking this kind of deference. They're used to invoking Chevron. Uh, and so when they wanted to regulate arbitration, they said, aha, right? I, I administer the National Labor Relations Act or I administer the Securities Exchange Act um, and I have Chevron authority under that statute. And that gives me authority uh, to regulate arbitration. And Chevron, right, Chevron tells us that the ambiguity about whether the agency can regulate arbitration uh, is resolved in favor of the agency. So agencies make that argument. They invoke their Chevron uh, authority, and people who are pushing back on agencies' ability to regulate arbitration say that uh, this is different from the classic Chevron scenario, uh, and I I, I I go down that route in the article. So
0: in your opinion, which, which approach is more compelling?
1: Um, so in, in my opinion, um, Chevron is kind of neither here nor there when we're thinking about whether an agency can regulate arbitration. And the reason for that is that Chevron just deals with a different kind of problem than the problem of statutory interpretation that arises in these cases where an agency uh, attempts to regulate the use of arbitration under a substantive regulatory statute. So the classic Chevron scenario, um, it takes Chevron itself, uh, the EPA, Uh, is applying the Clean Air Amendments Act uh, of 1977. And there's a dispute about what the word source in the statute means. Uh, One view is that every smokestack uh, is a source of pollution. You have to get a permit anytime you erect a new smokestack. The other view, uh, which the EPA calls the bubble concept, is that you can treat an entire facility, an entire factory, for example, as a single source of pollution. And Chevron says that in that kind of situation, the agency's reasonable interpretation of the statute uh, is controlling. And Chevron gets there by by looking at the structure of the statute and saying that Congress would have expected the agency to speak with the force of law because the entire regulatory regime is being administered by the agency. And it's the agency who makes day-to-day decisions uh, about what the statute means. So the reason that's different than the arbitration context is that in the arbitration context, we don't have a single statute administered by a single agency. There's at least two statutes that are relevant to the agency's authority to regulate. Um, You have the agency's organic statute, just like in the Chevron context. So you could have the EPA uh, talking talking about whether particular arbitration agreements are enforceable. But that exists side by side with the FAA, which the Supreme Court has interpreted in in this way um, that gives a lot of authority to contract drafters. To specify the way that disputes are resolved, um, and it's because of that that I don't that I don't think that Chevron is uh, is relevant to an agency's authority to regulate arbitration because it's just it's just dealing with a different kind of problem of statutory interpretation than the one we have to answer when uh, a, an agency invokes a statute it administers to regulate the use of arbitration.
0: Awesome and. Now you know you mentioned the Supreme Court's opinions on the FAA, so I think this is a perfect time for us to pivot to the New Prime case. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the dispute that's happening in New Prime uh, v. Uh, Oliveira?
1: Sure. Um, so, what's actually, what what's at issue in New Prime is uh, an exception to the FAA that applies to workers uh, to employees who are engaged uh, in interstate transportation. Um, the FAA explicitly exempts contracts of those workers um, from the coverage of the statute Uh, and in new prime or the specific dispute there um, involved a a company that uh, hired independent contractors um, that functioned very similarly to um, to traditional employees, Um, they were truckers Um, and the company argued um, that they fell outside of the FAA's exemption for transportation workers because they were in- independent contractors, not employees. So the question is right, was, was whether this exception to the FAA um, applies. What's interesting about New Prime um, and what makes me think that we might be seeing a, a subtle change in the way the Supreme Court interprets the Federal Arbitration Act is that the court interprets the FAA paying a lot of attention to the way that the language of the statute would have been understood in the 1920s uh, when the FAA was enacted. And that is a big shift, even from cases like Epic Systems, uh, which were decided right only months before where the Supreme Court resolves the um, uh, uh, the scope of the FAA by looking to uh, the liberal federal policy favoring arbitration and sort of improvising and jamming based on I- its own case law, uh, and so it's a much more uh, it's a much more narrow way of interpreting the FAA. It's a much uh, it's a much more restrained way uh, of interpreting the FAA, uh, and the reason New Prime gives me a lot of joy is that it's essentially the approach to interpreting the FAA that I advocate in the article. I say that, right, the FAA is not a, a constitution, it's not a super statute that, that rides roughshod over all of their federal laws, but it's a law like any other that we, we have to really think about how it interacts with other statutes. Um, and uh, I won't pretend that the court has read the article. And in the few months it's been <laughs> out, but it, was, uh, it was it was a real treat to see the court essentially following the interpretive approach that I advocate in the article when it uh, when it issued the new private decision.
0: <laughs> I'd like to think that uh, Justice Ginsburg and the other Supreme Court justices are actively reading the Minnesota Law Review. They're to, hitting refresh
1: to, on uh, the Minnesota Law Review Twitter account. <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. They're staying up to date on RN. <laughs> so I mean, but like with the way that you've approached your uh, your resolution to the FAA or the way that you're looking at the FAA, I mean, do you think that it it is heavily influenced by politics? Because you you do say um, there's a general approach that the Supreme Court is taking towards future arbitration conflicts, quote, assuming membership remains stable and that arbitration jurisprudence is not disrupted by legal or political shocks. Mm -hmm. So how do you think that the new prime case fits in with this statement? And do do you think that this new prime case is signaling the same direction, or moving us in the same direction that we were probably previously with um, with some other cases that we looked at and discussed.
1: So I think New Prime is a shift. Um, up until New Prime, um, you have um, a, a conservative majority on the Supreme Court that has never met an arbitration agreement that it doesn't like. Um, so anytime an argument is made that uh, the FAA should be inter- interpreted narrowly, or that another statute. Um, restricts the enforceability uh, of an arbitration agreement, the standard response is um, no, uh, the plain text of the statute requires agreements to arbitrate uh, to be enforced. So when you think carefully about the structure of the statute uh, and the historical context in which it was enacted, um, it's obvious that that sort of simple literal reading of the statute can't be right, Um, right? uh, If an arbitration agreement provided that the arbitrator may shoot the losing party, Um, If you just say, the FAA says that agreements to arbitrate shall be enforced, you would say that you have to enforce that agreement, but nobody thinks that's right. (laughs) Um, And what's interesting about new prime is that the court is looking at the history of the statute and looking at the way that the words of the statute would have been been understood in 1925 when it was enacted. uh, And saying that, right, going beyond, um, right, the literal meaning uh, of FAA section two, and saying, we have to understand this as um, a product of its times, as a a statute that's enacted in a specific historical context. And that is, um, to me, it's striking because it's a real shift from the way that the court has approached the FAA in cases like AT&T versus Concepcion, um, Southland where uh, the the seminal case where the Supreme Court says that the FAA applies, uh, applies in state court. And I think I, I want I, I don't have any inside information, but I like to think that it, it reflects a recognition on the part of the court that there have to be some limits to this, right? That the, the FAA, you know, it can't be like the First Amendment, right? Something that that takes priority <laughs> over every other provision of law uh, in the United States. So I think we may be seeing the beginning, or I'm optimistic that we may be seeing the beginning of a, a, a sort of really a, a more restrained interpretation of the FAA that's better attuned to the structure of the statute and the specific problem that Congress confronted uh, when it acted when it enacted it back in the 1920s
0: and and in some of the Supreme Court cases that you explored, and I think in some of uh, the sections of your article, you talk a little bit about how there needs to be an, a congressional approach or Congress needs to kind of step in and, and figure something out here. So do you think mm-hmm. that there is an ideal congressional approach uh, to handle this problem? Should there be clear legislation? And if so, what should this legislation tell us to do?
1: Right. Uh, so in, uh, the way that disputes are resolved is, uh, right, is an important question of policy uh, and right ultimately the structure of the court system, the enforceability of arbitration agreements, all kinds of procedural decisions um, reflect policy judgments by Congress and right in an ideal world uh, the Judiciary Committees would be attuned to this uh, and when they saw things happening in the courts that uh, that were inconsistent uh, with Congress's considered policy judgments. Congress would simply correct the court's uh, decisions, because all of this is all of this is statutory interpretation. All of this is interpretation of um, what's in the U.S. Code. For reasons that um, uh, political scientists have gotten into, um, procedural decisions tend to be very sticky. Uh, right? They're they're not like uh, you know decisions. About what sexual harassment means or the scope of the First Amendment that are on the front page of the New York Times, they tend to fly beneath the radar. People don't. People tend not to care about procedure until they have a dispute and they realize uh, what the Supreme Court has been doing and arbitration decisions and, and in other procedural areas. So it's been very it's um, it's been very hard to modify the federal statutes governing issues um, like arbitration, which means that. Uh, this is in a sense it's a common law field right the the law of arbitration is supreme court decisions and circuit court decisions uh interpreting very bare bones statutes uh like the faa so i've written elsewhere um i have a piece in the berkeley law review about what i think congress should do about it um and my view is that the most important thing congress should be thinking about when it uh when it decides the procedures used to resolve disputes is how that's going to affect private enforcement of statutes uh, and more specifically, how it's going to affect the market for legal services um, for enforcement of a statute. So most of our regulatory statutes, um, the Securities Acts, Title Seven, Antitrust Acts, a large component of enforcement is done by private plaintiffs. And uh, the reason, there's many reasons for this, right? One is that uh, we're sort of suspicious of a large federal bureaucracy. We don't, right, don't want to create Uh, a federal administrative state that could do all the work that private litigation does. Um, Another reason is that um, private individuals oftentimes have much better information about what's happening in the world uh, compared to to regulatory agencies. But the downside of private enforcement is that somebody's gotta pay for it. (laughs) And um, the way that this usually works is, is either attorneys aggregate claims through devices like the class action, or Congress enacts a fee shifting statute, which provides that if you sue to enforce a statute and win, you can recover your attorney's fees. Um, And arbitration can really interfere with those um, congressionally created mechanisms that try to encourage and try to calibrate um, private statutory enforcement. Because an agreement to arbitrate can come along, right? Congress can create a particular procedure for the enforcement of a statute and an agreement to arbitrate comes along after the fact and says, uh, right, after the fact, no, you can't aggregate claims, or no, there are the following limitations on damages, or no, you can't share information that's uh, that's disclosed during the arbitration. So if there's other people who have suffered the same problem as you, you can't rely uh, on a prior arbitration. And I think Congress should be attuned to those effects. I, I think uh, right, arbitration has really changed the way that many statutes that are enforced through private litigation, um, I, I think it's changed their impact on the real world. Um, and uh, right, we Congress to revisit those statutes, right? If, if Congress is gonna amend Title VII. Um, I would strongly encourage Congress to think about what the right procedures are um, and to set limits on the use of arbitration that it thinks are appropriate um, and are consistent with its goals for private enforcement.
0: And so, we talked a little bit about how I'm pretty sure that the Supreme Court has read this piece and then implemented it in their new prime decision. But outside of that, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's wishful thinking. But uh, what do you hope that the impact of this piece will be? I mean, I think that you make a lot of really compelling points and really strong arguments um, in a space that not, not a lot of uh, people have written on and, and not a lot of people have examined. So so what is your hope that this piece will accomplish?
1: So I. Um Like many law review articles, I'm writing for a couple different audiences here. Um, So the primary audience is simply courts. Uh, Courts see a lot of disputes about um, which arbitration agreements are enforceable, what parties can agree to do uh, in arbitration. And um, again and again, um, that requires courts to reconcile the FAA with other laws that are pertinent to um, the way that an arbitration agreement is treated. And right, I've tried to give um, you know, a roadmap for courts who are encountering these kinds of problems, who maybe haven't been thinking about the great historical arc of uh, the Supreme Court's arbitration jurisprudence or all the things that are going on uh, in federal law, um, not necessarily to resolve specific cases, but give them a way of thinking through these problems. Right? When somebody says that another statute bars the enforcement of an arbitration agreement or a statute creates a right that has to be respected in arbitration, um, a court can go to the table of contents of my piece uh, and, uh, and get a quick guide for, uh, for how to resolve that. Um, relatedly, um, I'm writing for advocates um, because the way that courts think about these things comes out of the briefing of parties in disputes about the procedures that are used um, to resolve claims. And um, oftentimes courts won't even reach an argument or won't even think, in, uh, think about an issue um, unless an advocate makes the argument. So I hope this is useful Um, for people on both sides of the V who are engaged in disputes about um, the coverage of arbitration agreements, what what you can agree to arbitrate, the procedures used in arbitration, uh, and things like that. Um, And then for legal scholars, uh, I think the piece works as a a slight corrective of the view that we are living in an age of unrestrained uh, arbitration. If you go back to that time series that I mentioned, you get the sort of you get the picture that uh, you can do anything in an arbitration agreement. Right? It's essentially this this lawless zone where there's no principles of law that constrain um, parties' agreement to arbitrate. And there are certainly anecdotes of parties doing terrible things in arbitration where that was the case. And this tends or it tends to influence um, scholarly writing uh, about arbitration. It, it sort of it it seeps into judicial opinions talking about the extent of parties' uh, agreement to arbitrate and this this article is pushing back on that right this this article is saying yes we have a federal statute that requires enforcement of agreement to ar- agreements to arbitrate but it is one federal statute out of thousands and right and we have to account for the whole body of federal law uh, and other statutes that people are relying on um, have the same stature as the FAA and they oftentimes affect what you can do in arbitration and the extent of the party's authority uh, to arbitrate. So when you think about that, it sort of it changes our picture of what the institutions of law enforcement look like. Uh, and it, it shows that uh, arbitration right, isn't quite the wild web, right, the unconstrained area uh, that you might think reading some law review literature and, and reading popular accounts of the arbitration process.
0: So- You've created this paradigm shift for us, uh, us law students, as scholars, the the judges, the legal community. What's next for you? What what are what are we? What should we be paying attention to, and and what should we be uh, waiting for?
1: Well, the big thing to watch right now is that last week, um, Democrats in the House introduced a slew of arbitration bills that are um, that are changing the Supreme Court's arbitration jurisprudence uh, in both minor uh, and major ways. Um, the, the broadest reaching of these bills is something called the FAIR Act, um, and it would simply reverse um, about two decades of Supreme Court decisions, holding that employment disputes, antitrust disputes, consumer disputes uh, are arbitrable. Um, it would also reverse the Supreme Court's decision in Epic Systems. Um, there's a provision of the Fair Act that says uh, an agreement to arbitrate cannot uh, cannot nullify collective action rights that exist by reason uh, of a federal uh, of a federal labor statute. So, um, obviously, the Senate is controlled by Republicans right now, um, who have um, historically been just fine with the Supreme Court's interpretation uh, of the FAA. So the bills. Um, prospects of moving through Congress and the current Congress uh, are, are very dim. But I think that what we'll see is um, first um, increased public attention to this issue. People are beginning to realize that um, these pesky little provisions buried in page 20 of your agreement with Comcast or your employer really do affect your legal rights. Uh, and then in Congress, um, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw very visible public hearings talking about um the use of arbitration in sexual harassment cases, the use of arbitration in employment contracts, the use of arbitration in consumer contracts. Um, And the main thing I'd be looking for is that we're gonna learn a lot more about arbitration, about how it's used on the ground, about how it has affected people who are trying to enforce uh, their legal rights. I don't think Congress will enact the Fair Act. I don't think it will go as far as the Act proposes. But I think we are reaching a moment where both in Congress and the courts, people are saying there has to be some limit to this, right? It, it can't be that anything you write in an arbitration agreement uh, is enforceable. And to me, it'll, it'll be very interesting to see how the politics of this plays out, what the limits are. I think the most uh, you know, the most likely thing to happen is that um, claims for sexual assault and sexual harassment uh, are going to be exempted from arbitration. Um, last year, 50 state attorney generals um, from both, um, Republican states and um, states where the Attorney General was a Democrat, wrote to Congress asking Congress to amend the FAA um, to, um, to 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 um, uh, allow public court cases in claims of sexual assault and sexual harassment. There's going to be a lot more pressure like that, and uh, my, my crystal ball is as bad as anybody's, but at some point it's going to reach the breaking point, uh, and we will see changes to this body of law which for the past couple decades has been uh, entirely the product of Supreme Court decisions.
0: Fantastic, thank you so much. And, and our last question for you is our signature question. It is the TLDR takeaway. So the too long didn't read takeaway. If, if, <laughs> if someone really wanted to know everything there is to know about arbitration conflicts, what, what would you say to them in a quick too long didn't read takeaway?
1: Um, I would say that the Federal Arbitration Act is an ordinary statute that we should interpret using ordinary principles of statutory interpretation. And when you do that, uh, it turns out that a lot of laws modify the FAA's instruction that agreements to arbitrate should be enforced.
0: Thank you again, Professor Noel, for your time today. Uh, it was great speaking with you, and and you can reach Professor Noel on Twitter at David L. Knoll. Uh, Professor Noel, thank you, thank you again for your time. We we really enjoyed uh, reviewing your piece and reading this piece, and and it was a no-brainer when uh, when we got it at the articles committee. So oh, thank my you pleasure. It's that. been
1: a lot of fun talking, and it's been uh, a lot of fun uh, working with the Minnesota Law Review.
0: Perfect. Thank you. And to the listeners out there, if you have any comments or questions, feel free to tweet us at Minnesota Law Review, or you can message me. Me directly at veNA underscore Tripathy. We'll see you next time on Experto Day. Thanks so much. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by the Minnesota Law Review. You can find us on the web at Minnesotalawreview.org. Follow us on Twitter at Minnesotalawrev. To subscribe to our podcast, please visit soundcloudcom minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast provider. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, or Minnesota Law Review. None of the content should be considered legal advice.